Hi everybody, this is Gatsad. Sunday evening, two days after my birthday. I had hoped very much to be away from all of the craziness on social media. I was successful in doing it for the day of my birthday, Friday, October 13th. But uh, since I've been sucked in to all sorts of issues... So today I thought I would just uh, weigh in or summarize some of the positions that I took today on social media and maybe expand on some of these. So first I had an exchange with uh, Michael Rechtenwald, who is a very much of an anti-woke professor. Uh, he's been on my show and I recently went on his. And I, was, <clears throat> I had put up a survey where, wherein I asked people, you know, if you had to choose between living in, in Gaza or living in uh, Tel Aviv, let's say, which would you prefer? And of course, what I meant by that is not today if you had to move. I meant it as a which of the two societies and the values that are enshrined with, within those two societies would you prefer to be a part of? But uh, Michael apparently chose to uh, ignore what the obvious gist of my question was, and he answered in a rather... Uh, aggressive manner given the fact that we know each other personally uh, and I consider him certainly a friend or friendly uh, he said you know what is this sophistry you know the, the Palestinians are being eradicated in concentration camps and it's a you know disproportionate force that Israel's using and so on and so I had responded to that and which got me to uh, weigh in very briefly on the issue of proportionality. So just generally speaking, so let's suppose that someone attacks you with, a, you know, a bunch of people attack you with uh, knives or with a samurai, and you have a gun and you shoot them, then should people say, well, that wasn't really fair because they came at you with a machete, with a Molotov cocktail, but you attacked their Molotov cocktail-making factory with tanks. That's unfair. That's not proportional. So that's one kind of uh, comment that you often hear in this discussion in the current conflict in the Middle East. You know, Israel's got Air Force and they've got all kinds of heavy uh, weaponry and it's unfair that they would be using it to, you know, attack those who seek to exterminate them. They should be using equal weaponry so that's one i'll leave it at that but then i i responded to uh michael's general point about proportionality so i wrote i said okay so we keep hearing about quote proportionality when it comes to israel's response i'll hopefully have a lot more to say about this soon i'm saying it now but for now let me pose the following three questions so number one should israel kill and rape an exact equal amount of people within each demographic group so if 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 40 women were raped in the music festival. Israel should go to Gaza, find a similar music festival, and rape 40 women there, in which case it will be equal. Number two, should it should Israel not level any buildings because Hamas did not destroy many buildings? So one thing that you see is there's all this destruction of infrastructure in Gaza, and then people say that's that's so lacking in proportionality you're leveling all of these buildings that's not Hamas didn't do that so should they only go in on paragliders to use the same kind of weaponry and arrive at the same number of killings or rapes or killings of babies 
And then number three, I said, more generally, what is the exact calculus by which the proportionality will be quantified? How, how do we, of course, no one ever talks about proportionality for any other conflict, but Israel has to be held to a truly impossible moral standard, right? So if they're constantly attacked, they, they, they retort or they, they, uh, they reply in a way that does that results in greater losses on the other side than they are being lacking in proportionality. And then some super fancy, you know, students look at my list, writes and says, for God's sakes, you don't even understand the concept of proportionality. And he gives me some philosophical treatise uh, about what proportionality means in a militaristic sense. Uh, I have socks that are substantially more cognitively acute than the guy who is uh, taking me on. Some I don't know who he is exactly, but my the way people use proportionality colloquially is exactly how I was responding. Why are you leveling a whole bunch of buildings? That's disproportionate. If you use heavier weaponry, that's disproportionate. If you end up killing more people in your uh, uh, response, that's disproportionate. That's not how war works. That's not how people defend themselves. Okay, Israel is trying to live in peace. It is trying to just go about its business. There is a group, Hamas, wants, it's in its charter, it wants to eradicate Jews from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Free of what? Free of climate uh, extremists, free of MAGA extremists, free of what? Free of Jews. They've said it. I can share with you a million different instantiations of that. So 1,300 people were killed in Israel. What constitutes proportionality? I'm happy to hear it. Please share it. Don't be nasty. Don't be insulting. Don't be threatening. Just explain your point in a civilized manner. What is the calculus of proportionality? All right, let's move on. Number two. I put out a set of uh, a list of some of the positions that have been floating around. And by the way, this list could be much, much longer. So let me list it here. Number one. Hamas could not have done this because Islam does not permit this. This is a position I can, as a matter of fact, there's a famous clip that's going around now viral from a, a, a woman in, in Canada that's exactly saying this. How, that, that can't be Hamas by definition because Hamas is an Islamic organization. Islam forbids this. Same thing. ISIS is not Islamic. Osama bin Laden is not Islamic. Uh, the, the mullahs in Iran are not Islamic. Saudi Salafists are not Islamic. You can just go to the parasitic mind in chapter 6 and 7 where I get into all this. So it can't be that Hamas is Islamic because Islam would never ever condone any violence. There is no proof ever in 1400 years that Islam has ever engaged in violence. Number two, the Mossad is too sophisticated to not have known about the attacks. They are in on it as this will allow Israel to met huge misery on residents of Gaza. The Jews are so diabolical and so shifty, so crafty, that how could there have been such intelligence failure from the Mossad? 
so that these guys could come in and you know butcher 1300 people the only way that that could have happened is because they wanted this to happen so that then they could go in and now really seek revenge on uh, the people in Gaza. That's number two. You see it everywhere. I've I've received tons of that. Oh, it's everywhere. Number three, no women were raped. No babies were harmed. That's so it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a Zionist lie. There's been no decapitation. No babies will ever be harmed. Islam does not allow that and so on. So any demonstration of the brutality of what those Israeli people faced is a lie. Number four, Israeli victims by definition. So it's a lie that there were real victims, but if there were real victims, Israeli victims by definition cannot be innocent as they reside in the apartheid Zionist state of Israel. So it's not true that there was this attack. It's not permitted in Islam. It's not true. It's greatly exaggerated. If at all, if any babies were harmed, but if there were people who were killed, assuming that they were, then they would be legitimate targets. Let's go on. Number five, what do you expect Hamas to do when their people have been in concentration camps for 75 years? Now, remember, when you use the term concentration camp, you use it for a very specific reason in this context, right? You know, Holocaust concentration camps. Let's go on. Number six, Hamas was responding to Israeli aggression over the past 75 years. So let's assume that the attack did happen, although, of course, it didn't happen. And if it happened, it was much less severe than what the Zionists are telling you happened. Then it's perfectly legitimate because what do you expect people to do when they have been, you know, ethnically cleansed for the past 75 years? Even though the population gets higher... And even though they are in concentration camps where, from what we know, the obesity rate is very high. Usually in concentration camps, you think of people who are malnutritioned, who don't have food, who can't. I mean, it's a concentration camp. It's Holocaust. But that's the language. You usurp the language of a historical reality that Jews faced and you take it to argue that you are the real concentration camp victims. Number seven, here go the Jews with their incessant cries of victimhood. I've received tons of that. It's everywhere, right? So when when now, you know, Israelis and Jews in general are saying are really f- frustrated, angry at what happened a week ago, here goes the Jew crying as he stabs you. You don't know how many of those I received. Imagine how hard, how hard of a heart you must have to write that, right? Remember, when I saw clips of ISIS taking a bunch of Muslim men and shooting them in the head, my calculus didn't say, oh, who cares? They're Muslim. I was angry. They're human beings. That's a real son. That's a real father. That's a real brother. That's a real husband that ISIS is killing. My moral calculus did not met out sympathy as a function of what the identity of the innocent person is. When an innocent four-year-old Palestinian is blown up because they were, you know, within 
the fire that angers me that frustrates me because that four-year-old didn't get a chance at life they, they have nothing to do with anything that's happening so i feel anger i place myself in the mind of those parents who could be perfectly lovely people and say that that kills i feel their pain i could imagine what they must be going through but imagine when someone says well it didn't happen and if it did happen it was justified maybe that's a broken moral compass let's go on if Jews are despised across countless countries and many time periods, perhaps they are the problem. So I received tons of from both noble people and from, you know, the, the traditional white nationalists and neo-Nazis and so on saying, usually they give the number 109. I don't, I don't know where that number comes. Uh, if, they've, if 109 countries have hated and kicked out the Jews, do you not think that maybe it's the Jews that are the problem? Let's go on. This is number nine. Prior to 1948, Jews and Arabs lived in a beautiful state of coexistence. Then the murdering Zionists came along. So the general story is there's there was no animus towards the Jews prior to 1948. As a matter of fact, in the last 1400 years, it, certainly in the Middle East, there's absolutely no proof of any animus and Jew hatred. None. Now, here's an issue. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem way before the Israeli state was created, was hooking up with his buddy Adolf Hitler. I shared a thing from the Hoover Institution from earlier, you know, from Stanford University, where he's hooking up with Hitler to, you know, finalize the Jewish problem, you know, in Palestine before Israel was created. So the Grand Mufti must have had this incredible ability to foreshadow the future, and he was preempting the final solution in the Middle East of eradicating the Jews before the Israeli state came to be. So that one would have to explain, how is it that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a massive genocidal Jew hater, was hooking up with Hitler to try to solve the Jewish problem before the creation of Israel? Okay, let's go on. Number 10, Jews are loved in the Middle East. The Islamic world only hates the Zionists. You hear that? Until 1948, there is no recorded instance. Khaybar, Khaybar, Ya Yahud. Jesh Muhammad. I'll let you finish. Why don't you look up that battle cry? Get back to me. There is no proof of Jewish persecution in the Middle East prior to 1948. Again, there's no proof. No proof whatsoever. The, the whole thing... By the way, why does it start at 1948, the historical claim? Why is that the date where we start the clock? Why doesn't it start thousands of years earlier when you have claim to that land? From thousands of years before the people who claim to be indigenous to land claim to be indigenous. No, the clock starts... When I tell you it starts, history starts, as far as this issue is concerned, in 1948. All right, let's go on. Palestinian misery has nothing to do with its leadership. So the idea is there's, I can't, I don't know the exact number, but it's many, 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 many billions of dollars that have been given to the Palestinian cause, like no other cause. 
Every single country that exists today, every land, every millimeter of land has once belonged to someone else. You know what the term for that is? It's called history. History is the study of the bloodshed, the river of blood that humans have imparted on one another. So there is no land today that you could think of anywhere that hasn't at some point been conquered by someone else. I discussed this in the parasitic mind. Now, why don't we do a forensic accounting in perpetuity for every single land grievance? But for every other issue other than the Palestinian issue, people move on. There is a winner, there is a loser in that particular struggle, and people move on. My I we were we left Lebanon. My home in Beirut was then stolen and occupied by Palestinians. Okay? I don't hold animus towards all Palestinian people because that happened. It's a dreadful thing that happened. It was part of my childhood. My parents were kidnapped and and but very bad things were done to them by a Palestinian group called Fatah. But I don't hold animus towards all Palestinians. Why? Because it's not a monolith. It's whatever those people did to my parents and to me and to my family and to my home 45 plus years ago doesn't relate to a Palestinian that I meet today. I meet many Palestinians who are incredibly kind and loving to me and vice versa. So one cannot move forward if you are perpetually mired in historical grievances that only can be resolved if one group is eradicated. That's just never going to work. So reasonable societies say, all right, let's move forward. How can we move forward? How can we reject violence? How can we coexist together? And as someone who has a lot of family in Israel, as someone who's very much steeped in Arabic culture, I can tell you that I've never heard from any family member of mine that they don't wish to peacefully coexist within that region. They recognize, look, if you look at the area surrounding Israel, it's well less than 1% of the land mass of Arabs versus what Israel is. It's in the order of 0.5% that Israel has. So 99.5% of the lands are owned by Arabs. Now, why am I saying Arabs versus Jews? Is because the, the Arab world will always say, well, we are one people when it comes to this issue. So if I'm Algerian or Libyan or Iraqi or Kuwaiti, I stand with the Ummah, the Islamic nation, with my Palestinian brothers. Okay, if that's the case, then there are two people fighting for an overall land. So you have 99.6% of the land, while there's a very, very small minority in that region that has 0.04, I think that's the number, of the land. Is that reasonable? Is that okay? I'll leave it to you to decide. Let's go on. Number 13, the Zionists have been engaging in a daily ethnic genocide since 1948. I mean, think about that. I, I've spoken to people who, who, who will literally tell you that Israel is not only an apartheid state, it's, a, it's an ethno-cleansing state that is engaging in an ongoing daily genocide of Palestinians. All right. Number 14, the Palestinian territories are open-air concentration camps. Now, 
what is meant here is that you can't freely get out of that zone. But that happens for a very clear reason because there are security threats. I mean, then I live in an open prison in Canada and that if I want to go to the United States, I have to show papers. Then anybody who's in who is confronted to any borders anywhere is in an open air prison, right? Part of that prison comes from the wall of Egypt. Why does Egypt put up a wall? Because that's their that's the brothers of the Palestinians, right? By the way, Israel gave up the entire Sinai in order to sign a peace treaty with Egypt, but which they won. In, an, in a war where they were attacked for extermination, right? Correct? So what? So the, the Sinai Peninsula, the Sinai Desert, would have made the Israeli landmass 50 times bigger if, if that's what Israel was all about, just expanding. But they, they gave it all back, right? Precisely because they just want the little swath and be able to coexist. Does that imply that they never do things wrong? Of course it doesn't imply that. Does that imply that there hasn't been innocent Palestinians that have been caught in the crossfire in this never-ending feud? Of course not. Is it tragic whenever any innocent person is harmed in this struggle? Absolutely. But you have to, again, think about it. You have one group of folks that are saying that they want to existentially exterminate the other group. By the way, I'm wondering, what happened to the Jewish communities in Algeria, Libya, Morocco? Well, Morocco, there's a tiny bit still. Uh, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. What happened to all those? Where, where, where are all the Christians in those countries? So, my on my on my in-laws' side... They're Egyptian Jews from Alexandria. They had to flee Alexandria. Why? My ancestors, some of them come from Syria. They had to flee Syria. Why? They, they have nothing to do with Egypt, my in-laws, uh, with Israel. My Syrian ancestors have nothing to do with Israel. Why did they have to flee Syria? Why did the, my in-laws have to flee Egypt? Why did we have to flee Lebanon? Why did my wife's family, who are Lebanese-Armenian, have to flee Lebanon? Why did my wife's ancestry flee Turkey in the genocide of 1915? Is there any commonality to those stories that you could think of? All right, let's go on which is going to lead me to the next point. Israel is often accused of being a colonizer. The general argument is that Zionism is evil because it is a colonizing force. Okay, is there a religion in that region that has engaged in the colonizing of an extraordinarily greater number of people and territories over a profoundly longer time period? If colonizing is evil and bad, it should be so for anyone who engages in it, no? So let's suppose that the creation of Israel were an act of colonialism and you are anti-colonial. So that is your deontological principle. Colonialism is wrong. So if we look at the map 
in the region, never mind other parts of the world, in that region, the much, much broader map, and you look historically at the societies that constitute countries there, is there a religion in the area that has engaged in breathtaking conquests of colonization? Or were those noble? In which case you need to explain why is the Israeli quote Zionist colonization bad? And why are those other forms of colonization with unbelievably greater numbers of blood, bloodshed? Why is that okay? So if British colonialism is bad, then why is that colonial? And this is not what aboutery. This is, you are stating that there is an inherent deontological violation in the existence of the nation of Israel. It's colonialism. We can debate if that's true or not, but let's, let's concede that point. Then how come the other forms of colo colonialism in that region that that cover a much broader landmass, much larger number of cultures, much number of groups of people. Why is that not something that you fight against or talk about? So that's that. Finally, what I wanted to talk about is, and here I'm kind of torn. I saw a ongoing uh, debate or kind of sniping back and forth between Megan Kelly, whom I love dearly, She's fantastic in every possible way. And Candace Owens, who is someone who's been on my show. And they were fighting over something that Bill Ackman, some of you may know him, he's a hedge fund billionaire, who basically was arguing that, you know, companies should take note of all of the students who have signed on to the, the, the Harvard, you know, the 31 associations of students that sort of were not condemning what happened with Hamas and so on. And he's saying, hey, just make sure to not hire such such students because, you know, maybe uh, you don't want people who hold those views. And then Megan, and then Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's also been on my show. Maybe I'll talk about him at some future time. Uh came out and, you know, was equivocating, well, you know, we don't want to be cancel culture and, you know, this is maybe a form, you know, people change and these are just kids who, you know, are navigating through these issues. And then Candace Owens was of that opinion as well. She said, well, look, I used to be very different in my political views and now I've grown up and changed. So we, we need to afford people an opportunity to change. Megan Kelly did not, did not agree with that. She thought that if you take a position that to her struck her as very immoral and not condemning Hamas and its butchery, then it's perfectly reasonable for a company to say, well, I don't want such an employee in my company. And I can really, I can truly see uh, both uh, arguments in that, you know, pe people, you, you do want to afford people an opportunity to change. They do grow. But also companies have a right to say, look, if you hold certain views, and values we don't we don't want to be associated with you and, and that's not cancel culture cancel culture is saying hey you took a position uh pro this or anti that well i'm going to now go and occupationally harass you and make sure that you're fired i'm going to make sure that you can't speak because you your position is so uh beyond the pale that you shouldn't ever be afforded you know that little thing called freedom of speech uh, they're not quite the same thing but 
but frankly, I'm, it's a tough issue because I can truly see how we need to allow people the opportunity to change, but people could hold certain positions that are so uh, execrable in their nature that you may not want to be associated with them. So anyways, let me know what your thoughts. Again, I weigh in on all these issues from a truly, uh, I hope, dispassionate perspective. Uh, yes, of course, I do have family in Israel. Yes, of course, I've got my personal history, but I'm someone who has theory of mind. I recognize that suffering is not restricted to the Israelis. It's not restricted to the Palestinians. Uh, any person who's innocent and suffers, who suffers a, a loss uh, that is meted on them uh, when, they, when they're completely innocent of what's happening uh, is a tragedy. And so I'm able to say that. My moral compass is such that uh, it's not my tribal allegiance that makes me feel for the pain of another. And so I really do come at this from as pure a perspective as one can, given how, uh, you know, hot button issue this is. I try to weigh in in a professorial manner, in a dispassionate manner. I share information. But you really should see the kind of abuse that I've been receiving you should see the kinds of concerns that there are over my security. That should tell you a lot. That security concern, those security concerns are not coming from, uh, well, you know who they're coming from. So there you have it. I wish that everybody could live in peace. I wish that we could all be talking only about science and philosophy and art and love and the beauty of aesthetics and so on. But this is the world that we live in. Hopefully, Things will calm down and hopefully within our lifespans, we can see a day where uh, Jews and Arabs can live in peace. Cheers, everybody. Take care.